Welcome to Germlogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from ABV through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. That about um, Indigenous health, how it pertains to dermatology, and then to get the residents aware of some of the opportunities that they have to provide um, health care to patients that are outside of the urban centers. So I'm thrilled to have you here for that. And what I'd like you to do maybe first is walk us through your dermatology training journey. Like how did you get here and, uh, and tell us a little bit about your day-to-day practice. Thank you, Carrie. So the first thing I just wanted to start with is when I was a medical student, I actually didn't really know much about what a dermatologist did. And I had a misconception before medical school that dermatologists were scientists that developed sunscreens and topicals in a lab. (laughs) (laughs) Also a reflection of Saskatchewan being so underserviced, I just didn't have exposure to dermatology at that time. Right. And what happened was throughout my early years of medical school, you know, I learned that I liked a whole bunch of different parts of medicine, seeing adults, seeing pediatrics. I liked internal medicine, subjects like rheumatology, infectious disease, minor procedures. And that when we had our dermatology system with Dr. Hall, we all know Dr. (laughs) Hall, excellent mentor. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, at the end of our systems lecture um, in second year, I realized it was like putting together pieces of a puzzle. I'm like, this is all everything into one that I really like, you know? And so that kind of opened my eyes to it. And that was, you know, further that that next summer, I went to Mozambique for with a project called making the links where Mm -hmm. we actually worked in a rural hospital in a very underserviced area. And although I wasn't a doctor at that time, the one thing that I realized is that we were using skin as a lens quite frequently to make to observe and make best fit diagnoses Mm -hmm. in absence of a lot of tests that are we usually can access in the western world things like you know x-rays um biopsies are there right all sorts of different you know labs we don't necessarily have easy access in that area so it was eye-opening because we are using the skin to look at as a manifestation of both internal and external health and that kind of solidified everything for me so i discovered dermatology late to be honest with you um and then Fast forward, I was very fortunate to match to dermatology in Toronto and I started in 2009. And when I moved there, you know, I'm a Regina girl, born and raised. I didn't know anybody when I moved there and I was really scared and intimidated. But I wanted to say that I just felt so welcome um, from the Toronto program. And I would say it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me in my life was going to Toronto and the people there. Um, One thing just kind of bridging into our conversation is that Toronto is a quite a large urban area in Canada mm-hmm. and coming from an area that has many rural patients and indigenous patients. What I can tell you is that I didn't have much experience, you know, working in rural areas and with indigenous communities. And that includes in these large urban programs, right? Cause mm-hmm. they, you know, downtown, right? So I think in the, maybe my whole residency, I can recall about maybe I can count, I always say on what two hands, how many Indigenous patients I recall seeing throughout my five years of residency. And that's no fault of anybody. It's just the demographic. Mm-hmm. So when I came back to Regina to work in my hometown in 2014, it was a very different demographic, a lot of rural patients. Yeah. And because it's an underserviced area, there's a lot of complicated cases that were kind of floating around the system due to the critically underserviced nature of the area. Mm-hmm. And what I see, I actually saw some of my mentors in, in Toronto in September, 
And I said to them, you know, one of them who was actually on my selection committee, Yvette, I call that my big sister, and Marissa Joseph, they're my big sisters. And I said to them, I'm just so thankful that you guys took me in to the program because it's such a robust program. And like, I learned so much in terms of managing complex cases. And I said to them, I don't think without the training I had in Toronto that I would have been able to handle these complex cases. I wanted to thank you for that experience. But the other part of that too is, um, you know, it allowed me to take that experience and mold into Mm -hmm. learning how to deal with these complex cases. But the context is different in Saskatchewan. So that's kind of how I ended up where I am. And right now I do have a mixed practice in terms of both in person. So I see the general population in Southern Saskatchewan, as well as remote and Northern. So that's Southern communities um, and Northern communities in the form of telederm slash virtual care and in person, actually drive up and fly in. And and the catchment areas we have are First Nations. So Dene and Cree for the most part. Right. And then Métis is the other. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'll I'll tell you, Rachel, that your your passion for dermatology, providing care to these underserviced communities, and giving back to your province has just is is really awe inspiring, and I think it's really great for the residents to hear your journey. And it's it's a um, it's in all of our best interest that Toronto picked you, trained you, and now you're part of the Derm community in Canada. Because really, I can't I can't say enough about what you um, do to uh, advocate for your communities. I think it's really wonderful. And I, I wish I could do the same. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think everybody's doing wonderful work in, in the way they can in their communities here. So tell me a little bit about how your, how um, your visits work when you're doing sort of the telemedicine versus in person. So what kind of stuff do you think is amenable to, to telemedicine? And how do you make those visits uh, work for yourself and the patient. Like it, it's, I know it's a bit of a challenge and many people have gotten into telemedicine, but you've been doing this for a long time. So. Absolutely. So our model is what I could call a combined model. And at the beginning, you know, I kind of started to slowly have patients trickle in and that's also a long story in and of itself. (laughs) Bottom line is some of these communities are small and word gets around. So, you know, if you start going to the community, all of a sudden, you know, oh, I heard about this dermatologist. She saw this person. She helped me with this. And then all of a sudden we're getting all these calls and referrals from all different communities. So, so what happened is eventually I actually had to get my own coordinator for the remote communities in and of itself. Okay. So we actually have a remote clinic coordinator and that's her job. And she does help with our general side on the Regina end. But her job is to help coordinate travel um, as well as booking the patients with virtual care. Mm -hmm. Um, So so basically what she does is she liaises with the administration or like some of these sites are under Northern Medical Services. Yeah. Which is, you know, based in Saskatoon to arrange, prearrange the clinics help to liaise with the site to book the patients because sometimes the sites themselves, like if you have trouble reaching someone, they know how to reach the patient because exactly. they're local, they know their community, right? Yeah. So that's one part. So she has to organize all that. And then the second part is arranging virtual care. Okay. So the thing about virtual care is we know, Carrie, and I'm speaking to the choir here, that virtual care can def- have definite benefits from a cost quality access standpoint yes. if used safely and properly, yep. but it's not for everybody and it's not for all cases. 
Um, but what I can tell you, especially with things like inflammatory disease, what I usually like to do is I prefer to see the patient in person first to meet them. Yeah. Because, you know, you can't necessarily have that humanistic side over the phone. But in the pandemic area, that's not always the Absolutely, case, right? Yeah, yeah. But in an ideal world, I like to meet them first in the community, intake them, examine them, introduce them, whether it's through the phone or sometimes in person, my remote care coordinator will come. We, they have their own cell phone line to reach. Because what I will tell you is one of these remote patients may require the work of three general population patients in an urban center. And that's for many, many reasons. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so whether we see them virtually in person for the first time, we like to follow up with virtual care. Yes. And I prefer storing forward, you know, whenever possible, because <clears throat> for synchronous uh, teledermatology, you know, we find the connections are not necessarily very good in the communities. Mm -hmm. um, and that's from not just what I've seen in the literature, but also from personal experience. So going up in the communities, you know, whether we're see we're on a reserve or one of the, you know, the Métis communities or really far up north, what we've noticed is that often, like, I can't even get a hold of my mom sometimes on the phone, right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, if you're on the outskirts of town, sometimes it's in and out. So actually, when I was doing my master's degree, I was actually looking up, I think it's called, I believe it's called High Speed Access for All. It's yes. a government yep. Canada report. Yeah, I believe it was issued, I think, 2017. Anyways, something along those lines where I was reading this article and they were saying the adequate infrastructure to sustain, it was not in a dermatological sense, but like telemedicine and other things. Right. There's certain bandwidths. And again, I'm not an expert on connections, but that are required to be able to sustain, sustain some of this fundamental infrastructure. And whereas I believe 97% of urban homes have this service, I think it was something like 37% of general rural homes and only 24, 25% of rural indigenous communities had access to. So there's definitely a wow, digital divide yeah. there, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's something that I see when I'm up there. And that translates into sometimes having a difficulty reaching the patients. And I think there are many potential reasons why there's difficulty reaching the patients you know so so yeah so it's difficult but what we always do when we intake them with a remote care coordinator and you have to think outside of the box sometimes right, right? some of these patients like in dermatology like we might have to use immune suppressants or biologic therapy like you need to be tracking these patients right or they can't be using topicals all over their body if they're erythrodermic mm -hmm. or have a significant so like there's got to be some form of connection so what we do, and again, this is all in progress, is we do provide them with our cell phone, yeah. which is for the patients yes. on the remote side. And we say, if you can't, you know, you contact us if you need anything. You can text us. You can call us. You know, we consent everybody for virtual care through a standard operating procedure. And if we have trouble reaching them, at least they have our contact. Yeah. You know, that's one thing. And the other thing that we have found effective, I wish my remote care coordinator was here, actually. Her name is <laughs> and we actually have a new person we're bringing on board. Wow. She's from one of the communities, actually. Really? She's from Gordon's. Yeah. She's, come for, she's actually from Gordon's Reserve. Yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah. So I'm really excited about her. So, um, oh, man, I could, like, keep going on this. <laughs> I want to come back to something you said there. And I think this is really important um, when we're as healthcare providers, in particular, if we're not necessarily part of the community, mm -hmm. you know, how do we, how do we build trust and how do we um, provide appropriate care? And so I think what you said, which is meeting the person in the first place, meeting them in their community. Um, I, I go to a couple of indigenous um, 
communities in Nova Scotia every other mm-hmm. month. And I'll tell you that it's much, much easier um, for them to see me in their home community where they they trust the system, they know everybody yeah. at the clinic. And yes. to your point, you know, they'll be like, I'm going to have my cousin to come and see you because this was great. <laughs> and and so, you know, I but I think it's important that we think about like, how do you build that trust? And yeah. I think one step is meeting people in person. But then do you have any other thoughts about that? Because I mean, I, I think that can be a big challenge. We want to, sorry, so, you go ahead. No, I appreciate that. So thank you, Carrie. So one thing I just want to back up for a minute and look at the bigger picture is there are trust issues in many of these communities, you know, and I, when I think about this, I think about my dad's side of the family. Yeah. So, um, you know, and my whole dad's side of the family, you know, there's a history of residential school, including in my father for, you know, my dad himself for about a decade. Wow. And, you know, that's only one generation ago. And we, the last residential school closed in 1996, actually in one of the reserves that we service in Southern Saskatchewan. And we have many patients of different ages Mm -hmm. that have attended residential school. And due to that experience of, you know, institutionalization and, you know, I do feel that there is some, some distrust in the system, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes they they might have heard experiences in the news or from other family members where they may felt feel like they they're not comfortable going into the system. You know, we do know that systemic racism does exist, you know, on multiple levels. Yeah. And and I do think that for me, and I'll be totally honest, because I carry an indigenous last name and my father's experience and my father's side of the family, I feel that naturally I can make that trust. Yeah. You know, and the other part of that is I, I feel that for me, it even took years to gain trust in some of the communities, even for me, right? because I've been doing these outreach. Now I just started my ninth year of practice and I've been doing outreach on various levels. Like I haven't been doing all the communities right. for eight years, yeah. but like I've been doing progressively more. And some of the communities like Stony Rapids, I think my first Stony Rapids clinic was like 2015. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I kind of picked up other communities. But what I can tell you, like, and I go to All Nations Healing Hospital in the South, my dad was just born across the lake there. Okay. Is, you know, it took me years to develop some working relationships. So even with me, it took some time to build trust, I do think. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact there's a lot of transient practitioners mm-hmm. that come in and out of the community. Many of them may not be from the community, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 they're used to having practitioners come and go. Um, and I think that that long-term relationships are important on that end. Right. And then the other part of this is what can the general resident or dermatologist do to build trust? Yeah. Um, and I just also want to say, I think it's really good that we're doing this for the residents. Like I'm so pro-resident and student. <laughs> you know, I just, I, have, uh, I actually have one of our residents with me today. Oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, Tosin Odeshi, PGY4 cool. from dermatology. She's my... She's going to be my dermatologist. <laughs> You're <laughs> lining her up for yourself. <laughs> yeah, she actually came with me to Stony Rapids, actually, um, a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And our, our resident, Greg, and PGY2, they both came up with me. Cool. And it was really eye-opening for them. Mm-hmm. So what the question is, going back to that, what can we do to build trust? So one is we have got to integrate, and I'm coming from a dermatologic lens here. Yes. Is we have to have Indigenous health in the dermatology curriculum mm-hmm. and Indigenous skin health. 
Um, because, you know, I do notice, and I, and again, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes here, but I do notice that there's a lot of discussion around things like skin of color, diverse skin tones and increased, you know, racial and ethnic diversity and educational modules and increasing representation on not just sides like clinical trials, but also textbooks, right? Mm-hmm. And in a Canadian context, like we have to bring Indigenous peoples into that conversation. Absolutely. And I do find as someone who attends a lot of these sessions, both in person and, and education, that I I noticed in a North American context that often we're not having that conversation. Yeah. So I think that that's something we, we need to work on. Yeah. And I think that it goes into curriculum. I For practitioners, there is uh, modules available. I actually made all of my staff do um, cultural competence um 12-week course and there are two that I'm aware of um one is out of the University of Alberta okay and it, this is all in a western context but like a lot of it's national right there's common legal historical social right there's there's common factors across Canada that cross provincial borders so like a lot of these courses will cover important topics that are relevant to all of Canada absolutely you know and it's things like indigenous wellness um for for healthcare practitioners so I do think that that's another route yep. so you know and then the last one I'm going to mention before I'm, again, hijacking this conversation, <laughs> we have to give the patients time to tell their stories. Yes, yes. And these patients are complicated. Like, it's really hard for me to go to the reserve where they might have a doctor once a month or maybe just a nurse and there's like poorly controlled diabetes, you know. Yeah. I've seen some real significant cases or, you know, they've, they've got uncontrolled medical disease. Like, how am I going to help your skin if you're, because we know the skin's a manifestation of internal and external health. Yes, yes. But actually, I wanted to touch on the external health thing in a minute. Yeah. Okay. But my form of reconciliation is to try to refer these people for the right care they need if they don't have it. Yes. And it takes time for these patients. So it's not compatible with the fee-for-service system. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing is new grads who are interested in working in underserviced areas and in Indigenous communities, an example, the fee-for-service system is not compatible, especially if you have to pay all your overhead. For me, I pay 100% of my overhead. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 it doesn't make sense to be paid the same amount or actually more if I see a patient with one wart. Here, write it down, spray it versus a patient who's got covered in a rash, there's chronic infections, they've got no GP, like it doesn't make sense. You're, so yeah. we, we need to protect that time for that. Well, exactly. And I think I, I think that's a very pertinent point. Um, in particular, you know, doing easy things um, and making the same amount versus that complex. That's why I think even looking across the country, you know, there's not a ton of people that do a lot of complex medical care in dermatology. And I think it's a real disservice that we're providing to our patients. Um, mm-hmm. When and, and I think this may be an opportunity for um, so when I go to uh, the community here, I'm on an alternate funding program. And so I'm mm-hmm. able to book patients for 45 minutes to an hour to hit that complexity when I um, go to uh, Indian Brook and Millbrook, for example. And so patients don't feel rushed. But if I was a fee for service physician, it would be totally different. And so, right. you know, I, I, I think that's really important. And I and, and agree that there are a number of uncontrolled dermatologic conditions at, at baseline, in addition to the other underlying medical comorbidities that often haven't been um, seen or managed. I think it's a real challenge. Right. So just going back to that, Carrie, like, and this is just, this is for the residents to learn. Absolutely. So what happened to me is like, I had no clue <laughs> when I came here, like so naive. And what happened was, you know, when you start, you see everything, right? Yes. Cases all over. 
And then if you're in a critically underserviced area like Saskatchewan, and I'm here throwing, uh, throwing out here to also advocate for my non-Indigenous patients in an underserviced area mm-hmm. and for my colleagues where we've lost four derms within about two and a half years because we just couldn't sustain our practices is when you cut. Co- so apparently, according to the CSPA, and correct me if I'm wrong, they say about one dermatologist per 60,000 people. <clears throat> I think that's about what we're, yes. Yeah. And... If I, we have a catchment area here in Southern Saskatchewan, about 600,000 people, basic mathematics tells us we need about 10 dermatologists. And we have nowhere near that, okay, if you count in part-time and full-time. And so what happens in an underserviced area on a fee-for-service system is you'll see everything at the beginning and then you're okay. But we've found a consistent trend where about two to three years in, you end up with complicated patients that need a dermatologist they yes. can't leave the practice follow-up codes are lower mm-hmm. so for me what happened to me Carrie is I was at a point where and I have to provide this voice where I ended up in a crisis about two to three years in where I had so many complex patients on the fee-for-service system I was my practice was going to fold because I couldn't afford to pay my overhead with the level of complexity I was reaching a level of burnout yes. chronic burnout my overhead is high. So I had to also try my best to get an ultra funding plan for the complex patients because it's not sustainable. And we need to be able to have that fundamental academic base and base to handle those cases so that others may come. Yes. So again, we have got to have a working group with CD or something to advocate for our new grads so they don't burn out in the medical system on fee-for-service. You know, we have to advocate for that because our billing codes are very much different than internal medicine, but our patients can be just as complex. Absolutely. And there's such regional um, differences. So, you know, a fee code in Nova Scotia for a major consult is actually much higher than um, most of the rest of Canada. However, follow-up codes are similarly low. And so to your point, you know, in, when you collect patients that are medically complex and you have to follow them, um, you end up with a predominantly follow-up practice. And, and that is not sustainable in the fee-for-service yeah. world. And, you know, I think a lot yeah. of areas of medicine don't necessarily struggle with the same concerns because they don't have a full fee-for-service with 100% overhead structure right. like, you've, like you've laid or- out. They might have, for example, nurses, right, that are provided by the region or state. Whereas, you know, if I call myself a forever resident, and I was telling this actually to Tosin today, (laughs) and you know, because here's the catch is, how do we mitigate that? So if I end up with a problem, and I can't get beyond that problem with regards to the complex case of your service, there are many avenues I could take. One is I could say, okay, goodbye to all my melanoma patients who discharge from oncology. Goodbye to all my patients who are on immunosuppressant biologic therapy. Goodbye to all my reserve patients. I'm just going to focus on doing a wart clinic. That's my expertise. And I, you know, I'm not trying to sound, you know, yeah, but that would be more sustainable for me. I'd have an easier life. I'd make more money. Mm-hmm. Be able to nurses. Okay. So again, we need to think about these things because if we don't, it's the patients that suffer, right? And the dermatologists as well. Um, but to have something like a nurse can really help. Yes. So I have, I do have a part-time nurse, which I, I am responsible for funding. Yeah. And, and, you know, basically it has made a huge difference for me because <laughs> they're kind of like an in-between the admin and the doctor, right? Where the men can't necessarily be doing like doctor stuff, but the, there are things that nurses can do, which can help decrease some of the work burden. Yes. So I think we have to, like an example of this is atopic dermatitis. So beyond just a skin problem when moderate to severe, 
we're seeing a lot of atopic dermatitis in the northern and remote communities, which mm-hmm. I would really like to touch on after because yes. I think that's a good framework of common conditions. Absolutely. Don't let me forget about that. Yep. But like think about diabetes, okay? Yeah. Diabetic nurses can do counseling. You know, there's a lot of things like lifestyle, nutrition, management to watch their feet, you know, regular appointments, check the eczema, in my opinion, is very similar because look at all the instructions that we have here. Yes. So bathing, moisturizing, hypoallergenic skincare. Yep. Um, flare management and trigger avoidance. Yes. Okay. It can be overwhelming and take a lot of time. So we need to be able to have eczema educational nurses, you know, to work with the patients. Um, and there's actually literature that I've been looking into that. But I do think we need to have education for those who are on the front lines, like nursing stations and doctors who see the patients because we're so, it takes a long time to see a dermatologist in Canada. And these are common conditions. So it's like, why dump all the eczema patients onto the derm who has a two-year waiting list? Okay. Why don't we engage the frontline practitioners like we do with diabetes for these common diseases? So we're not seeing these crises, you know, for example, with chronically infected AD on in children, which yeah. we, which is a real problem. I couldn't agree more. And I do think, uh, to your point that it's important that we as a group, uh, try to advocate for those things, because I think, you know, there's probably power in multiple voices versus one person, um, trying to really yeah. make those changes. And, uh, but you know, I, I think it's incumbent upon us, uh, as a small group of people that have a very specialized skill set. Um, you know, that was, that was subsidized by the Canadian taxpayers to be able to help provide mm. that skincare, recognizing that, you know, 70% of dermatology, care is provided by primary care practitioners. You know, it's not us. And so we do need right. to try to make make it easier, um, to your point, for the, the, the simple stuff or the basic stuff. And then when the patients have gone beyond that and need an advanced therapeutic, that's when we're, that's when we're there. Um, thank you, Carrie. Just to expand on that too. So as someone who has been involved a lot in undergrad and postgrad curriculum over my career, one sentiment that I hear, and I, I would like to hear your, your opinion on this too, is in medical school and nursing, there's a lot of vertical and horizontal overlap with other organ systems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cardiovascular, respirology, and all of these are linked together. We know that that's the human biological system, including the skin and skin disease is common, but we find that the skin and dermatology curriculum is usually not as present mm-hmm. or robust or integrated like other organ systems. And I do wonder, you know, how often they talk about hypertension or diabetes, but like how often are they talking about these common skin diseases? And as someone who's seen several thousands of patients, and again, I'm not trying to be a mean person here, but I do think that there is area for educate improved curriculum on primary care, because I find that like some of the referrals they send me or the care history over many years, it's like, if this patient had like hypertension, like, you know, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like skin is not, we need to. No, like, I, you know what? Not... You, you're right. And I think part of the problem is um, a lot of people just really have no, my, here's my opinion, I guess, here, uh, is that, you know, the vast majority of uh, healthcare providers don't have any experience in dermatology. They don't get it in their medical school or their nursing school. They don't, they barely get it in their residency. And then mm-hmm. we launch them out and say, here, you, you deal with these things. Um, and they really don't have the toolkit to do that. And furthermore, um, th- what we do teach uh, tends to not be that um, the, the stuff that's really practical. And so, you know, I, last year, here's an example. I was a tutor of a med two group for the metabolism section, and it was about cardiology. And we spent an entire afternoon 
talking about tetralogy of fallow and the surgical repair. Now, how many primary care providers in Canada are going to have to know how to do that? Cardiac surgery? Absolutely. But then we don't talk about eczema. We don't talk about psoriasis. We don't talk about... I call these the diabetes of dermatology. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a really important point. And But I think the other piece is we don't have a whole lot of clout when it comes to curriculum development. And we do need to, as a group, hopefully make some of those changes or say, listen, we recognize there's not this curriculum. There's, there's this piece missing. And how do we help bridge that gap and say, okay, maybe, maybe the medical schools aren't going to get on board, but how do we help to educate our colleagues so that they feel more comfortable doing the diabetes of, of dermatology? I like that. I like that. I'll tell you my thoughts on that yeah. is, you know, I have a lot of patients tell me that, and this has actually been shown in some media articles too of some of the indigenous communities where often these conditions are di- dismissed as just a skin condition. And where I think one we have to take this is to, to look at things like moderate to severe psoriasis, where we know that there's, you know, observed in so- associations, especially more severe disease with chronic systemic inflammatory conditions, right? It's like diabetes mm-hmm. and metabolic syndrome and so forth. Um, so one is to link the skin to the systemic. And then the other is to like, look at the, the quality of life and mental health impact. And I like to say the medicine wheel impact, you yes. know, which is from my Plains Crease side, I learned some of the medicine wheel, okay. um, which is looking at the holistic impact of the disease. So if you're looking at things like moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, which in which the majority start in children and youth, right, right, eczema, think about things like anxiety, depression, ADHD, chronic skin pain and itching. Mm -hmm. There's even some suggestion of increased risk of suicide in severe patients with AD. So again, we have to sit down with some of these curriculum and say, you know, or at least I understand that GPs might not be handling necessarily severe cases, but at least to talk about referral pathways, like don't dismiss this as just a skin problem. And I can send you an article on that later of an Indigenous child and her mother who were in the news Who's, who said, and there's a big caption there saying, you know, something along the lines of, we are told, oh, it's just a skin problem. This child is covered in eczema and has infections issues. So <clears throat> I think we need to to look at the holistic p- picture and hammer that into the educational curriculum development. I think so too. And even just how to indicate severity on a referral, I think is really important. So <laughs> I saw a child in my pediatric clinic the other day and, and, they have severe eczema and probably will end up requiring something systemic. And I looked at the dad and I said, Oh my, you have terrible eczema. And he said, yeah, I got a referral to you. My doctor sent it months ago. I haven't heard anything. And so I tracked down the referral and it just said, um, a longstanding history of eczema, uh, elbow or, you know, um, antecubital fossa, popliteal fossa involved. So I didn't triage it as urgent. And this gentleman is essentially erythrodermic. And so, you know, had the information been conveyed, yeah. he's, you know, 70% covered, yeah. I would have seen him very quickly. And so I think that's another opportunity that we have to say, yeah, you're not going to handle the, the, the very severe patients, but how do you communicate to us the severity so that we can crazy? see them in a timely fashion, right? Yeah. An example of that that I have is actually this was a patient from a Northern Reserve, an Indigenous young patient who the referral was sent to me saying eczema failed 1% hydrocortisone. I'm like, this is easy. (laughs) (laughs) And then I watched through the community where they had paper charts and her chart was over an inch thick. Oh my. So I thought, why, if this is just eczema and she failed hydrocortisone, why is this 
child's chart over an inch thick at this age. And if you look at the chart, what we're seeing is multiple visits for flares, multiple visits for secondary skin infections, mm-hmm. in which we know those with atopic dermatitis, especially moderate to severe, due to fundamental problems with the skin barrier and immune response and environmental interactions, things like deficient antimicrobial proteins, they are at increased risk of skin infections. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, bacterial skin infection in particular, I think is a problem. And that's something I'm actually looking at in the form of a systematic scoping review of North American indigenous skin disease. Okay, It's being done in parts. I've been working on it for over a year. It's probably the biggest project I've worked on. Um, and I've got some residents involved as well. Cool. But what we are going to show is that even if you look into the literature, the little literature that's there, um, experiences of healthcare practitioners and media, we are seeing consistent concerns of chronically infected and eczema. Like it's con- it's chronically raising its head. Yes. And these are what I call common conditions going poorly addressed. And I will I will also say that I think that this is a crisis of children and youth. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and that can be multiple fold compounded on all of the barriers and social determinants of health that we're seeing, especially for those in underserviced areas. And so I think we need to also open up that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are barriers that we do see on, on, let's say, for example, using as a remote reserve as an example. So are, am I okay to continue? Or Absolutely. I, I was just going to say, you wanted to talk about AD sort of specifically in the Northern community. So like maybe, yes. I, I think maybe that's where you're going and like, please do yes. continue. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I know, everybody knows I'm a little obsessed with eczema. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> but you know, when we were in residency, I remember like, do you remember, we'd always talk about like, oh, what's that gene for that one in a million condition? You know? <laughs> uh, yes, I do remember that. Yes, and I You do. might see once every three to five years if you're lucky. Or never. Yes. Yeah, or never. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we had to like memorize all this minutia. And I, I actually like academia and minutia. I like all that stuff. But when I came out to practice, what I can tell you is it's the horses that are going to cause a problem, not the zebras. Absolutely. Common conditions. So, you know we need to to focus on what's common. I, I'm not trying to dismiss rare disease. I think that all of this is important. But, you know, so going back to the atopic dermatitis thing. So we always say that the skin, and this is one of the reasons I also like was really like the skin. Manifestation of internal and external health. So we know, Carrie, we can look at someone's skin and say, you know, maybe you should have your thyroid checked, okay? Mm. Or is your diabetes controlled or maybe you need to get checked for some forms of infectious disease like hepatitis HIV. So that's, a, that's something that, that it could be a sign of internal health, but external health and environmental health, I will argue shows itself on the skin for patients who are facing barriers and social determinants of health, for example, in reserve. Mm-hmm. And again, beyond this conversation of complex, the complex background, again, looking at, you know, things like, impacts of colonization or legal and historical factors, you know, right. There's so many different things that can go into that. Yeah. That's beyond this conversation. But if you look, for example, at someone who's on reserve, who's got a chronic issue, like atopic dermatitis, and let's just say they're moderate to severe. Okay. So there are so many different factors that come into play for environmental and skin health. So for example, let's say we tell One of the things, how I actually started learning this, and I've always read about this in textbook, talk to colleagues, but example of this is when I started going up to Stony Rapids, 
which is a flying community for the Northwest Territories. And I, I saw a lot of eczema patients. And the first thing I was saying to them is, okay, like, are you, I saw, felt real naive, but I'm like, are you moisturizing? And they're like, <laughs> well, you know, maybe a little, a lot of bear grease that yeah. was being used. Okay. And again, I don't know how many bears you can go through for this. Okay. okay. And so I'm like, okay, well, let's just try basic Glaxal base. Like, can you go get that? <laughs> then I came back to there. And then a lot of my patients still were not moisturizing, which we know is a fundamental point of care, mm-hmm. proactive care for atopic dermatitis and lifestyle. So I started writing them prescription for moisturizers. And this is before NHB was covering moisturizers okay. and not all indigenous patients on NHB. So I wrote them prescription on moisturizer, <clears throat> came back. A lot of them were still not doing it. And I'm like, what is going on here? Right. So multiple reasons. Um, now NHB does cover basic blonde moisturizer. That's one potential for solution. Yeah. Um, but if you look at some of the inflated costs, let's say some of these reserves, they just have like a confectionery. And this was actually in CBC News as well. Or like a small bottle of non-hypoallergenic wash. Yeah. They're extremely inflated costs. And if some patients are experienced, you know, socioeconomic disadvantage, you know, or they have very limited opportunities to get products. Sometimes you'll see a very small jar of a moisturizer for inflated costs. It's like, who's going to buy that? Yeah, absolutely. How far is that going to go on your body surface area? So I understand why a lot of these patients maybe are not necessarily using these. Right. Right. And that that's one issue with proactive care. <clears throat> and then let's get other factors. Let's say a patient is in a remote community <clears throat> and there's an urban specialist with a long waiting list. How and this patient is complex. How often can these patients see me and, and get guidance if their disease is consistently changing? Right. Yeah. And then so long travel <clears throat> distances. Um, transport issues. Sometimes there's only seasonal roads or yeah. like sometimes the communities <clears throat> are flying. And then the other problem is exa- example is the infections. Yes. So again, after seeing many patients, I'm not just doing this from the media and the literature. I've seen this on a regular basis and hearing these concerns raised by my colleagues who also do some outreach yeah. is that the skin infections in particular, bacterial. So those can be like, like things like impetigo boils cellulitis you know mm-hmm. these are problems and often i find that patients are empirically treated for mrsa in which we know that there are increased prevalence of mrsa in these communities according to the literature in many of them yeah and i'm going to release that in my scoping review but i find that cultures are not always done right. and i think that there are many reasons for that one is empiric treatment so they're getting all of these like strong antibiotics without a culture assuming it's MRSA. And these are just observations, yes. but again, it's in the literature too. Yeah. We're seeing as um, If you try to do a culture, some of the communities cannot even have the culture done. Okay. Or the long transportation time makes you wonder about a false negative. Absolutely. Yeah. Or things fire. So again, that's a problem. And then the other part of this that I think goes into education is I feel bad for some of these patients and their caregivers. And I am coming from a child and youth perspective here. Cause I, I think that's where we need to start. Yeah. Because these are young people who need to be able to grow up and live a healthy life. Um, but I find that like a lot of the caregivers and patients are putting like steroids on like crusted impetigo. It's getting worse. And they think it's eczema. It's not their fault. Yeah. And then it's almost like you can't recognize it. It's that bad. I know. It's, and yeah. we're seeing this in the media too. So again, education on infection management because mm-hmm. if you put an anti-inflammatory infection the first thing we learn in derm is it's going to get worse mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so 
So the infection is a problem. And then there are things like water safety. So I always, always, always give the disclaimer that I'm not a water expert. Mm -hmm. And then there are things like water quality versus water quantity. Okay. But what I can tell you is if people are afraid of their water, they might underuse it. And that might end up in things like lack, lack of basic practices that might help with standard hygiene to yes. yeah. prevent these things. So again, this is a whole area that is happening and we need to raise the discussion and, and it's complex. I get it. We need a multi-stakeholder. Approach. Well, for sure. And we take it for granted. You know, I, I take it for granted. And, and Nova Scotia is generally underserviced in, you know, as a whole, but at the end of the day, you know, I see a patient here in the city. I, they can take a daily bath. They have access to clean water. Uh, they can go to Costco and buy two giant tubs of CeraVe for 25 bucks. And you just take those things for granted mm-hmm. that like that I is know. not what everybody has access to, let alone the, the ability to afford um, and or even just get. So right. it's huge. Like it's, and we really do take it for granted. And I think to that end, um, it's a great opportunity when residents have the ability to go to underserviced communities, like with someone like you, or I know sometimes the Ottawa residents go to Iqaluit or wherever, right. and, and it doesn't have to be an Indigenous uh, community per se, right. but just to get that, you know, not everything is like in the city. And, right. and, and you see those things right when you came back to the beginning, when you said you went to Mozambique and you're not using, you know, advanced diagnostics, you're going, okay, well, right. uh, we need to fix this, you know, and I, yeah, I think you really rely on your eyes, your hands and your brain, right? No fancy yeah. tasks. <laughs> the other thing to clear really quick is like, um, oh, I kind of, I, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> I, derail, I derailed you. No, I, it's all good. <laughs> I'd like to, if it's okay, just for time's sake, I, I do have clinics starting in 15 minutes. Yes. I do want to talk a little bit about solutions because one yes. thing I think is important is we can talk about problems, but but without talking about solutions, you know, yeah. we have to talk about a translational perspective on this. Yes. So this is a complex issue. Okay. It's beyond the skin. It's a systemic issue on top of multiple other factors. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. But I do think that we need to have regional and national working groups on common skin disease. Oh, yeah. Sorry, just to rewind here. Yeah. What I was going to say is, and I know I'm talking about Indigenous healthcare, but I'm just going to throw it out there for my patients is that I live in Saskatchewan, you know, Midwestern Canada, a lot of rural patients. And it's not just the Indigenous patients that have the barriers. Yes. The non-Indigenous rural patients also have barriers. Yeah. And, and I think that it's a problem with like access to and underserviced, like a lab might be very far for them during the pandemic. It might be shut down if we need safety labs for something like methotrexate. Like we don't want to harm the patient, yes, right? They absolutely. teach us that in the first year of medical school, do no harm. But how are you going to do no harm if there's no lab and, you know, you have no choice but to give this medication? Yeah. So so we have to think about rural dermatology in general, like yes. not just the Indigenous populations. Yeah. And I find, and I'm not trying to knock our dermatology programs, but I think we need to have more rural discussions here. And I think Western Canada can lead that discussion. I know there are some initiatives already, you know, and I think that that, that's something that we need, we need to urban, a lot of the urban places, they are often Mm oversaturated. Okay, we need to find a model, whether it's having visits in person or 
with a pandemic context, right? Yep. Like virtual care. What's the role for virtual care? So let's talk about solutions before the patients Please, come yes. and yeah. more definite stuff. <laughs> Please give me your solutions. <laughs> yeah. What are your well, thoughts? Well, the definite thing is we need a multi-stakeholder approach that is, but I do think to be honest with some of these crises that we're seeing in the communities, like I do think we need to have dermatology involved because not to be offensive again, but I had a nurse practitioner tell me that often the first line practitioners are not comfortable, not just with skin conditions, but if they come really complex, they, one of the nurse practitioners who sees a lot, she said she's, they're terrified of skin conditions, which means they may not be confident. So right. we need a multi-stakeholder approach involving dermatology because dermatologists are the expert in skin disease where I'll be saying, okay, this is crested impetigal. There's scabies here, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we need to to have that level of expertise to be able to diagnose, but we also need to involve the nurses, the communities, right? Yes. Um, and that also goes into research. So the other part is research. So my master's degree is in clinical and translational research. And my area of interest is population health, indigenous health, rural health. I got I have a lot of interest. <laughs> but, you know, we we need to be able to not just talk about um problems, but talk about solutions. Yes. So what, what we know, Carrie, like, is it, and this is for the residents too. When we look at our big germ textbooks, <laughs> where does this information come from? It comes from the literature. Yes. So we need to generate new research on a translational level to make tangible health outcomes, um, you know, to contribute not just to the literature, but to better outcomes for underserviced populations. Mm-hmm. So some of the projects that I'm working on are multifold. One is a systematic scoping review to provide a lay of the land. Yeah. And I've connected with Dr. Derek Chu from McMaster, who's allergist and immunologist, a very well-known clinical clinician scientist. And he is awesome. I'm so glad I met Derek. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're talking about maybe forming a working group where we can raise these concerns with policy and decision makers. Yeah. You know, so the research projects that I have going on here in Saskatchewan is mm, we had, we had a national survey of healthcare practitioners, a manuscript in progress, we're having, um, we've had, I have an Indigenous research assistant, Trisha Campbell, who's Cree background. Mm-hmm. She's right now finished finishing her master's in epidemiology. And we, and she held interviews, you know, with me as a PI. I couldn't be involved because, you know, I'm the practitioner, right? right? But she held interviews on the reserve with some patients with skin disease as sharing circle, circle type format, um, you know, to, to give them the um, ability to speak about their barriers on a quantitative way, because again, we don't have any information on preferences and values of these common of atopic dermatitis or common skin condition digital people. So that's another thing. And we're seeing themes coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the others we're having, we, we actually got permission from five reserve led uh, communities in the South after many years to build that trust, to do a chart review. And my chart review is multi pronged okay. of the one is of the virtual care patients and the other is actually topic dermatitis okay. in children and again I have permission from the REB and the reserve on this and what this publication is going to show is there's a high risk of in particular bacterial skin infections multiple bacterial skin infections and moderate to severe disease similar to the limited literature we have in the children and the youth on reserve so that's generating one thing. And then other solutions include, um, we have to have working groups, virtual care. I think there's a huge, I think everybody's talking about virtual care right now. And I think that that's great. Yes. But I think that if anything virtual care can do is it can really help 
the communities who are can have poor access and face many determinants of health. I think we need to talk about a virtual care working group for the Indigenous communities because when I have patients come down from the reserve, let's say in central northern Saskatchewan, they will come to see, I know I'm based in the south, but they actually come to see me from North because it's my catchment area and they request me because mm-hmm. they know I see the Indigenous patients. Mm-hmm. Some I feel bad for this one girl who had severe eczema who came down to see me and they got on the van from the reserve in which they had to, um, you know, uh, pay the reserve driver. Like they had to, t- it took like, it was like an eight to 10 hour drive. Like I'm not joking you one way they came down for the appointment and then left the same day. And I just felt so bad mm-hmm. for them, you know, like, yeah. and th- I signed off on, on that travel stipend. Like these can cost over one to $2,000 when yes. you add up like accommodations travel. And this, if like that can be a cost to like the federal government, if it's NHB or something. So again, we need to start with virtual care, right? Because yep. think about that. There needs to be a cost analysis. So yes. if, if we can build a fundamental infrastructure that works or a network, then perhaps we could save a lot of money that could go elsewhere, right? But it has to be for the right patient. And then the other is education. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where do we have Indigenous health curriculum in our dermatology residency programs? Yeah, that's a no, I would say. <laughs> and again, so I was like, is this a, is this a trick I'm, question? Did it sneak in there since I wasn't resident? I'm here to advocate for my patients. Okay. But I think we need to do that mm-hmm. for the residents. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and I think, I think that we always talk about, I, and I think, like I said, I love, I, I love all the programs. I think we've got robust programs. I had a great experience in Toronto, but I think we need to think about having like mandatory rotations for virtual care going yes. up to the communities. Yes. And like that's, I know Saskatchewan's tiny. We're trying to get our program off the ground again. Yeah. Um, we have one spot and we're, we're trying it this year. But one of our strengths is we can have the residents come up to the communities. Like we had Tosin and Greg come up with us. Yeah. Right. Experience, meet the patients. Um, and we had a full house that day. Right. We, t- we And the other thing too is I take walk-ins in these communities because what happens usually is like all of a sudden, oh yeah, the dermatologist here. Then we get a bunch of people coming in for walk-ins. So <laughs> we have to be able to accommodate the patients who might not be able to, to you know, even if there's no referrals their space, I will see them, right? Absolutely. But I can only yeah. work so fast. Yeah. So um, yeah. And then the other thing too is representation in the literature, yeah. right? When we're talking about skin of color, let's talk about indigenous people yes. yeah. too, right? Yeah. And how are we going to include them? Because if we leave that conversation out, it's perpetuating the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, things like the indigenous skin summit. I was so just I really... about to say, can you please tell me before I know you have patients coming, but I was like, please just tell us about the indigenous skin summit. So all the residents yeah. are aware. So, so again, like I'm, I'm a career person, meaning like I do work a lot. Um, and one of the things that, that has been probably one of the main highlights of my career is the indigenous skin summit. And what this was, was it was spearheaded and hosted by Chronicle Co- companies mm-hmm. um, and Mitch Shannon, which I am internally grateful for because this <laughs> summit has created conversations and has networked me with so many different opportunities and other people to talk about this. Yes, We've had really good attendance. We've had two sessions. The first one was held in 2021 during Close the Gap Day, which is mirroring Australia because Australia's Indigenous population faces many similar health determinants. Right. And actually, it's evolving now. And what we have now is we have, I've liaised with the first Indigenous dermatologist in Australia. Her name is Dana Slape. Actually, it's Dana. That's I'm, okay. I'm not Australian, <laughs> but like, I, I should point out. Dana Slape. 
Um, and also a dermatologist from Florida who's also of Indigenous background. Okay. Um, yeah, Dr. Anna Shakon. And we together have formed the triad, a triad. <laughs> it's early days. But uh, we, so, so three Indigenous women dermatologists, Canada, United States, and Australia. And through the Skin Summit, so this past year, all three of us presented Cool. And we we're now in contact and we're hoping to start international skin working group. But again, these are all early phases, but I want to learn from data, right? Because there's in my opinion, Australia is way farther ahead of the literature. Like they have things like the stop trial for scabies. They have guidelines for skin disease. I can send you that if you want for the indigenous community. Yeah. So, you know, we can learn from Australia. So one is I need to learn from them. And then the other thing too is in the States, no offense to the states, but I don't think there's really much discussion at all Indigenous skin health. <laughs> and so, so our goal again is we've connected, we're brainstorming, but we're looking at maybe thinking about joining the Innovation Academy AED to talk about integrating this into the curriculum. Looking at this on a further perspective, and again, it's super early days; no real work has been done. Um, but I do think that we have some powerful connections through the Skin Summit, and I look forward. So, this last thing too is a Skin Summit covered many different topics. We didn't just talk about skin disease. We expanded that. So we talked about, you know, we had Dr. Alika LaFontaine, for example, the new uh, CMP president. Yeah. He talked about environmental health in our first one. Okay. We had my mentor, Dr. McKinney, who's an Cree, uh, Cree physician who is originally from BC, I believe, but she she's the head of Northern Medical Service. She spoke about listening to the Indigenous patient. We had my dad, Blair Stonechild, who's an Indigenous historian and knowledge keeper elder from First Nations University talk about historical context. We had many other speakers, like we had um, Dr. Beach talk about skin of color, which is relevant as well, yes, right? Yeah. You don't always have to come from it, that expertise, you know, and then I talked about skin and then we had our residents present. So the new generation, we had Greg present. Yeah. We have a new uh, resident who's a uh, Dene background in BC. Um, she presented as well, Jordana. And so we're, we're starting a little something from the ground up. And so come to the Indigenous Skin Summit if you can. I don't know if it's going to be next year or the year after, but there's a lot of work to be done. So we've talked a lot about what we're seeing in the literature, media, okay, and uh, experiences, but now it's time for action in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, listen, Rachel, if anyone can do it, it's you. And I think uh, you've given us a lot of info. I'll I'll post some of the links too um, for the different uh, cultural competency courses uh, where we have our podcast posted. And right up until the wire where you're about to I'll see patients, that would be amazing. We'll post those. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule uh, to talk to me and join the podcast. And thank you for your insights. And um, I really think uh, I agree with you. It's time for change. And uh, hopefully we can all be part of that solution. Thank you, Carrie. Have a good one. I want to thank Dr. Essanawasa so much for joining me on the podcast. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please give us a rating and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps people find these interviews. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. If you're looking for more great CDA podcasts, be sure to check out the JCMS author interviews hosted by my colleague, Dr. Kirk Barber. It features lively conversations with authors about their articles that are published in the JCMS. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.